welcome to this new episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and it's been a while since I've been in the recording seat. But today's episode is worth the wait. I want to warn you, though, this is not a comfortable, feel-good conversation, but rather it's a hard, needed, uncomfortable conversation that we, especially we white women, need to be having more of. In this episode, I am joined by Syra Rao, the co-founder of Race to Dinner, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better, and executive producer of the documentary, Deconstructing Karen. Last month, Syra sat down with me to share her story of spending much of her life as a brown woman, aspiring to be white and accepted by white society. We discussed what finally opened her eyes to her own internalized oppression and led her to start speaking up unapologetically against white supremacy. It led her and her co-founder, Regina Jackson, to create The Race to Dinners, the documentary, and finally a book addressed to white women and our racism. Be warned, this is a radically honest conversation about white supremacy. I challenge you to sit in the discomfort and then have a hard look at your own complacency in a system that is hurting us all. <laughs> all right, Syra, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. Like I said, I haven't been in the podcast seat since November, so um, I'm just honored to start with you, but admittedly a little anxious because, you know, you make people uncomfortable, especially right. white women, so uh-huh. here we are. <laughs> and I don't expect you to hold back with me today. So, Syra, before we get started, I will have given a really in-depth intro to you with all the hats you wear, but can you just tell us where you are in the world, what your day-to-day life looks like, and then we are going to jump into your story, your book, your movie, all the things. I am in Richmond, Virginia. It's where I was born and raised. So when all these white people told me to go back to my country, I guess I have actually done it because I came back here five months ago from Denver, Colorado with my husband and kids and dog. Um, Day-to-day is this. I mean, really talking to as many white people as possible to help you all start and continue and sustain your journey and not fucking us over and creating and building a community of my own black, indigenous and brown women friends. That's really sort of the day to day. Like I said, you wear a lot of hats. You're a lawyer by trade. You've run for Congress like you have done. So very much. And most recently, you are the author of the book, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. You're co-founder of Race to Dinner, and then you're part of the movie of Deconstructing Karen. And we will talk about all of those things later in this conversation. But before we do, I really want to dive into your story of what brought you to those places. Because admittedly, you share so much in your book, which is so powerful, that you were immersed in the white spaces. You were uplifting white whiteness patriarchy, white supremacy, all of that. Um, and I think that's what make your, makes your story so powerful because it's like, look, I was I was doing it. I still do it. I still work. I'm still working on it. So let's start back with your origin story as far back as you want to go. Sure. I know you are the daughter of Indian immigrants. So you take it from where you want to go with that. Sure. I mean, like I'm still trying to unlearn my whiteness. I used to be the the whitest brown person you've ever met. And so this comes from a place of deep knowledge and experience. Um, Yeah, so born in 1974 in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, roughly 110 years after slavery ended, and I'm putting ended in quotes. Um, One of, like, our family was, I think, one of 25 South Asian families here. Nobody knew what we were. We didn't know what we were. You know, people asked us all the time if we were dot or feather. That was it. And I knew, you know, I can't remember a time in my life 
when I didn't pray to the gods and we're not religious people, I'm agnostic. My parents were not religious. My mom was Catholic, but prayed to whatever God there was out there um, to make me white and thanking that same God for not making me black. And in a nutshell, that's where that's the ecosystem. So people who say they don't know or like it's complicated, everybody knows and it's not complicated. What's complicated are your feelings around it. But the actual system is very simple and and everybody knows from the from the earliest of, of times. Right. So I grew up taught to assimilate that word was that word was tossed around a lot in in south asian households including my own and it was very clear the words white you know is never brought up we called it american that's what my parents said american um and that was very clear that it was white americans not black americans so assimilate to white culture not black culture so that's what i did and and you know by the way all of this makes us deeply anti black as Asians. So we too are part of the system. And so if you just think about it as a hierarchy, which is, which is what it is, is white is at the top, black is at the bottom and the rest of us are somewhere in between. So we are doing, we are mimicking all the things that white people do across the board and the anti-blackness of my people, um, inherently means self-loathing too. You hate yourself Mm -hmm. because you're not white. And so the closer you get to white, the better off you are. And I did that. I did all of it. I mean, I was president of my student council. I was captain of field hockey, basketball, lacrosse. I went to the University of Virginia where I joined a like an almost exclusively white sorority. I wore Laura Ashley dresses. I made out with white boys who had Confederate flags and told me that I was exotic. Um, all of it. And, um, you know, even after on September 11th, 2001, I was a third year law student coming up the stairs of the World Trade Center that day because I had a clinic at the U.S. Attorney's Office next door to the World Trade Center, Tuesdays of fall semester. And, you know, I left my apartment as the model minority and I came home that night, 12 hours later, bleeding, shoeless as a terrorist. Even after that, even after that, I still was basically silent for another 10 years. So So I have that in my notes because you had at the end of the book where it asks you questions, at what point in upholding white supremacy did you realize your silence wouldn't protect you? And you share about the 9-11, yeah. but yeah. I didn't know that it took yeah. 10 more years for I you. Mean, I know I've always known mm-hmm. we've always known, you know, it's, it's, but you still do it because that is culturally what happens. You know, that's what we've all been taught is, is if you just stay quiet, you keep your head down. This is Asians, keep your head down, work hard, just do what they say. They'll leave you alone. They'll let you buy a nice house. You know, all, all the things you get a nice car, you get a nice house. You can send your kids to nice schools. But then look, in 10 seconds, I became a terrorist. Look at what's happened to East Asians in the past few years, like East Asians. And and P.S., like I remember in the aftermath of, of September 11th, I went to NYU Law School and there are East Asians in my class who were like, we're not that kind of Asian. And in the past few years since COVID, South Asians will be like, well, we're not that kind of Asian. Everybody is trying to is trying to like drop the hot potato, you know? Yeah. And so the people who never have to drop the hot p- potato are you people, white people mm-hmm. um, and black and indigenous people are always the enemy. Mm-hmm. The rest of us kind of rotate around who is the, the enemy du jour. Right. So uh, what what as Regina Jackson, my partner, would say, there is a, a significant life event or something. She says something really smart like that in terms of what wakes people up. Um, there was never I mean, I'll tell you, there's a there was a fire, a match on on what I've always known. 
which is I moved to Denver from New York city because my mom died very suddenly. And I did what you're not supposed to do, which is do something outrageous, like move across the country in my case to a basically all white city um, with my Brown family from New York city. And I did that to be closest to the people who were like my family and my closest friends from UVA who were all white women. And we were sitting at dinner two days after Donald Trump was elected. And I was the only one in the group who did everything in my power to get Hillary Clinton elected. So these women are all like Democrats, right? Uh, But they were all too crazy busy to ever volunteer with me. I canvassed every day. My daughter, I picked her up from school every day. We canvassed. We held fundraisers. We phone banked. They literally, not one time, they wouldn't even put yard Hillary yard signs in their yard. I mean... But um, they're too crazy busy. You know, Syra, I've got work and kids as if I didn't have work and kids. Right, right. So um, never fuck with a crazy busy white woman, you know, Andrea. And so it's uh, your you people, you people screwed over your own. Right. What was it? 52, 53 percent of you voted for Donald Trump. Anyway, dinner two nights later, we sit down and immediately they start making grab them by the pussy jokes. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is literally a joke to them because they're going to be fine until they're not, which we're seeing now. Right. Um, And I went to the bathroom and I can't when I was in the bathroom, I got a text message from another UVA person saying, I'm so sorry about what they're saying about your mom on Facebook. And I'm like, what? My mom had been dead for many years at that point. And these friends loved my mother. So this whole personal relationships are going to save you. I came crying. They called my mom. A pocky, they referred to as an, her as an N-word because of a post that I had made on Facebook that morning. And I just hadn't checked my Facebook and I'm no longer on Facebook. But um, I came and I was crying and I told them what happened, thinking, oh, my God, nobody is going to be more empathic because they love my mom. Right. Silence for a minute. And one person said, we'll call them all Karens. Karen number one says to Karen number two, it's her birthday tonight. It's not about you. The other one says, can't you just lighten up? We're trying to have some fun. And the third one says to the fourth one, your skin looks really great. What are you using? And I'm just sitting there. And it that was the significant, that's what it took. It took the people I love the most in my life at that point to essentially erase and diminish my dead mother mm-hmm. all at once. I mean, it was like, it was like lightning striking. I actually think about that a lot. I'm like, if that night hadn't happened, I would probably still be like a seething, seething, white woman in Denver, Colorado, like, um, white brown woman. So anyway, that, that was it. And and that was kind of the beginning of my new life. But yeah. The question was what started your quest that sparked dismantling your own okay. internalized oppression. And that was, that was it, that it was that moment. Wasn't the world. And this is what crazy. concerns me a little bit, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it really was sort of the most extreme thing that could happen with the most, all the players like my dead mother, my best, like all of it. And so it makes me, I have to think about that a lot because I get very frustrated by how you people can't wake the fuck up. I get very frustrated and I'm like, wow, I was 41 when that happened. Like it was, uh, and it, it took that so um, I would argue, I would argue, arguably things are so extremely bad right now obviously extremely bad that if you are not waking up now, come on. But I, I keep having to have uh, empathy for people because, and, and patience, because I know what it took for me. Mm-hmm. 
my own story, Sarah, I've only woken up the last couple of years. I mean, I was a hardcore Republican my whole life. Like, I mean, even to feminism. Now I know all the faults with white feminism, but I, I mean, I am a completely opposite person, but for me, it took really my daughters and realizing the harm. It wasn't enough that my own self suffered from eating disorder, like all that. It took my, my daughters and purity culture and whiteness and all that for them to suffer. Isn't that amazing? It is. And it's like, why don't I, I get frustrated too. Like, why don't we have enough love for ourselves as women? But it's like, this culture does not allow that. And uh, it's none of you, it's, it's all about money, money, money. And mm-hmm. there's no room for actual, there's lots of t-shirts you can buy about love, <laughs> um, but very little actual love. That's right. So I know, like I just shared with you, me always being Republican, that's how I had to do to, you know, white evangelical Christian spaces that I was raised. So I know you were heavily involved with politics because you ran the Democratic t- ticket um, for Congress, but you've also, di- you divorced politics. So that was another part of, I don't know, what you're awakening or realizing yeah. of what, and that in itself led to the race to dinner. So can you share yeah. a little bit of yeah, that sure. and how you got to the race to dinner? Sure. So in the aftermath of that cataclysmic dinner with my friend, my former friends, um, I just started posting on Facebook. That's it. I had a, I was in a complete private citizen, nobody. Right. And, and all the people who I was friends with on Facebook were white people, white upper middle-class wealthy women. Mm-hmm. And they thought I had lost my mind. I'm sure you experienced something extremely similar, <laughs> lost oh, yeah. my mind, you know, intervention after intervention, we're worried about you, gaslight, gaslight, gaslight. So it wasn't working, right? And so what they did, Max, is what white women do is they went to their bosses, which are their white husbands, tattled on me. So then their bosses went to presumably my boss, my Indian husband. So then the white husbands would call my my brown husband and be like, you got to get Syrah in, in line. And he actually was having his own. I mean, he was grappling with all this because he was married to me. And he was like, I obviously have zero control over Syrah, number one. And number two, I you will remember that I'm also brown and she is not wrong. Do Am I comfortable with the way that she's presenting it? Not really, because he was a scaredy cat at that time. But he was like, she's not wrong. And I'm and, and he would say to them, these guys, if you have a problem, you know where to like, we were friends with them. You should. But it was always like, you know, smoke and mirrors behind the back, all the shit that you people do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happened after that is spent the whole year doing this. And then a bunch of stuff happened with this. Um, I talked about it in the book with this political action committee that I was really involved in. And they they really stabbed me in the back after I had held fundraiser after fundraiser for all their white women. They I was their token. Right. I was I played it dutifully. And then when I asked for them to see me. Um, as a brown woman, they literally went psycho. And so that's when I penned this essay, I'm a brown woman breaking up with the Democratic Party. Nobody would publish it until I found a black editor at HuffPo and she published it. It went fully viral. This is December of 2015. No, no, I'm sorry, 2017, December, 2017. Uh, Not even that long ago. And then like all the feedback was welcome to the club. We've defected as well, or screw you. You're a traitor. And then a bunch of people were like, why don't you run for office? And I was thinking like, shouldn't we be able to critique our elected officials without running for office? And you have to have so much privilege to be able to run for office. And I was like, you know what? I have class privilege. I can hire babysitters. I'm able-bodied. I have able-bodied privilege. I can do this. 
So I jumped in at the end of January. I was one of the last people in the country to file with the FEC. Five months trying to primary out a white woman, Democrat, who's now been in office for 25 billion years, 25 years now. She hasn't done anything, literally has done nothing and said the year before that civil rights are not one of her issues, which is very convenient for white people. Um, And my entire platform was anti-racism. This is it. This is I mean, but by the way, I go back and read the stuff I was saying then and listening to podcasts from then. And I'm like, God, I was mild and people freaked out. And in February of that year, I was given, did a poll, given 2% of a chance of getting over 12% of the vote. And I finished at like 34%, like 45,000 votes or so. It was like, it went, people responded, white people responded. So um, after that, you know, it was the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi flew into town to, to, to squash my, um, my uh, campaign. The Democratic Party literally did everything to ensure that my voice, and then some of us squeaked out that year, right? AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. I was part of that, that crew. Thank God some of us squeaked out. And I thank God I didn't, I would not, I would not be an okay person, member of Congress. I just couldn't do it. Like watching how things have moved for the, for them, which is they've essentially become completely powerless. Um, And uh, I will never touch it again. I mean, I will never, I have moved to being an independent. I, I think that electoral politics voting is a, an absolute bar. I am not on this blue, no matter who nonsense. I'm not a like vote, like your life depends on it. Yes. Vote. If you're a white person vote, because all of our lives depend on it, but I would never pontificate and scold people of color or young people of any color. Um, to vote because look at look at what we've been given yeah. and we're seeing it right now right. like they, literally because the new congress just got voted in the democrats had a full two years to do something anything pack the supreme court have a vote on medicare for all nothing and now that a bunch of them have been kicked off their committees the the fundraising emails are like you know spinning out of control we need to take congress back why and I think that's something you really opened my eyes to, because like I said, coming from a being a lifelong, you have to vote Republican to Trump finally changing things for me to like, wait, what the hell to vote Democrat. Then I think, OK, that's that's what I need to do. Just vote Democrat. And then you're opening. You really open my eyes to like, no, both sides are so fucked up and racist and so there is though that place of what politically, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, One is the if you look at this from a global perspective. But we don't because we have American exceptionalism Mm -hmm. and we have no clue what has ever happened anywhere in the past, except of what happened in Germany in the 30s. Right. That's it. That's all we know. But even let's take that. Let's even take that. The only Holocaust, the only genocide we ever hear of is that particular one. Um, We are mimicking it now. So but we're not actually students of it. We're not actually students of the whole thing that was happening during that time. The Nazi Party literally based their entire, like the final solution, all of it on the way America treated black people. Mm-hmm. That's literally like, and they even said, oh my God, how are they getting away with it? It's too much. It's like, they're, they've gone too far. Like, so, so this whole, like, those are the bad guys. Yeah. What is happening right now, even with Joe Biden coming in, in between, I mean, there's going to be a Republican, right? Probably DeSantis in 2024, they come back, like they're going to be able to do anything when they come back in 2024. It is what is happening in Florida will be America. 
That is going that is going to be the entire country. So every all the liberals, white liberals are doing cute little memes about what an asshole DeSantis is and how horrible Florida is and Texas and that. Like, what I'm sorry. What is propelling these people to say and do more and more horrendous things? It's because it's inching them closer to the White House. It is working. So look, the Republican Party is a it is a Nazi party. None of this far right, whatever. It is a Nazi, open and notorious Nazi party. That is their platform. The Democratic Party are soft fascists. They're soft Nazis. So it's like the hard Nazis versus the soft Nazis. So you vote for the person who's going to kill you the slowest. I mean, I will never not vote and I will always vote for the Democratic candidate. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not even holding my nose. I don't even have time for holding my nose. Yeah. I vote because my life does depend on it. But that is the bare minimum. That is like literally the bare minimum. We have to we have to abolish the system. We have to wipe the constitution out. We have to start over. And all of the stuff about like, oh, the founder said this and that. Who the fuck cares? With the, these are white racist and rapist colonizers. Who cares? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who cares? And like, look, the Biden didn't pack the court. And now we're sitting here. We we now have effectively, we have effectively a Nazi Supreme Court. And he could have, now it's too late, right? But he could have done that. He could have packed the court and that at least we could have saved the judiciary. Right. Uh, Sarah, I want to keep, I want to talk politics with you for the rest of this. Okay. okay. But we're not, we're, we're going to, we're not, we're going to move on. Um, because I want to talk about how your run for office really did lead to the creation of the race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Regina, the co-author of your book was on, on your, um, campaign committee, right? Yeah. And so tell us a little bit in a nutshell, how that led to race sure. to dinner, the race that's to dinner how, started in 2019, right? 2019. So okay. she worked on my campaign. That's how we okay. met. And she noticed at like every single event that I spoke at, there was a line out the door of white women to tell me, not me, not all white women. That was her entire thing. And I would meet them for coffees and lunches and dinners because I was quartering their votes, none of which I received. I received a lot more votes from white men than white women um, because that's straight up misogyny. White men also hate you all. So they they think that they have some sort of a, alliance with, with me, which is a misguided conception, which I have to correct all the time. But anyway, I lost. I became a target because of a tweet that a white male Democrat in the Colorado state legislature basically put a target on my back on Twitter. Next thing you know, Fox News, Breitbart, that's when all this stuff happened. That's when I like basically hit the national stage is because of that. And I like left the state of, I had to leave the state of Colorado for a couple of months because it was so outrageous. The amount of death threats that my kids were getting, my husband's company got doxxed. I mean, it was out of control and it's continued to be, I'm now just used to it. It was shocking at that point. And now I'm like, Oh, you know, I'll get a message from someone on our team. They'll, they'll be like, okay, just so you're aware, like we, we're getting an influx of, of hate mail. And I'm like, okay, like whatever. At that point, it was pretty shocking, the stuff that people were saying, you know? And so uh, I get back and that fall, Regina was like, we'll call her Becky. Her friend, her former white friend, Becky, was like, I'm done with Cyrus. She hates all white people because I posted that Beto O'Rourke was a white savior. So that's the straw that broke that Becky's back. And I said, and I just donated to his campaign. And if I lived in Texas, I would vote for him. Please vote for him if you live in Texas, because multiple things are can be and are true. Um And so she said, but she wants to have lunch with you and wants to know if I'll set up a lunch with you. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm done doing that. But I said, how about this? 
I've got a whole laundry list of white ladies who've been like itching to have lunch or dinner. Why don't we throw it together? You come with me and I'll have, I'll have dinner with her. Right. So we did that. And it was full white women, Broadway musical, like replete with crying arms folded. This woman was literally, we wouldn't allow it now. That was just, but she did a couple laps around the table, walking, crying, like so mad. Um, and so the next day it was just wild. And Regina was just like, Oh my God. And I was like, this is by the way, what my campaign looked like when I was having, and so I posted about it on Facebook the next day and it went fully viral fully viral. And Patty, I've inspect a white woman in LA DM'd me. And she was like, I have been following, I'm a filmmaker. I've been following your campaign and just watching your Facebook, like the way we as white women react to anything you say. And I've been trying to figure out a way to capture what you're doing. And now, oh my God, dinners, dinners. So we, Regina and I were like, if we're already chart if we're already doing this for free educating white women why wouldn't we just start a business regina was like let's call it race to dinner and we did we did a couple more that spring and then patty came in june of 2019 i mean a full year before white people discovered systemic racism after george floyd was murdered um and shot a whole dinner and that dinner that you see in deconstructing karen was was one of the first few race to dinners that we ever had Okay. That's how the movie came out. I kind of wondered how the overlap there. So yes, the movie Deconstructing Karen came out in November. So about a little over two months ago, and that is a documentary in a sense of some of the things you shared here about your story, but primarily of the dinners that you still do. You still continue to do charge form white women show up to learn, listen, and uh, really be uncomfortable. And and I did participate in one of your dinners that is yet to know if it will actually be on the Dr. Phil show. I was actually going to reach out to Dr. Phil today because he's his show, by the way, they just announced it's going to go off the air. But um, my sense from what I've gathered through different channels is that they got a tremendous amount of blowback from the top brass at CBS who thought that it was quote very one-sided in favor of us and the Fox dinner, the, the episode that showed or the yeah, dinner the episode okay. that showed was one-sided in favor of you. Yeah. And so, and Fox news has done now two full length, you know, they, I, we're going to post this. I mean, they did a full thing on the, the Phil episode last, just last week, right. This is not going away. And um, so back to like, it's three months. Are you, these people have like, they, they, they run us on their rotary because they get so many clicks when they trash us. Yeah. Uh, so my guess is Dr. Phil, which is kind of unheard of for big national TV like that to promo a, in a, in a few weeks and then yeah. not to do it. So I have to reach out because I'm getting so many DMS from people who are like, when is the next one? When is the next one? And I'm like, if they're not going to have it, they need to tell us, you know, they absolutely do. I keep checking. Cause I have family yeah. asking, I mean, yeah. I, okay. I know one of your things is don't be shocked. Trying not yeah. to be yeah. like yeah. the the fact that they felt that it was one-sided is a little wow. Because um, we, we didn't let the white woman run roughshod. And we actually, I know it's very hard for, for white people to understand that Regina and I actually might be smart and know what we're talking about and, and show that, you know, they, they weren't expecting it. Yeah. You're, you white might be absolutely think, right. White people think, that what it's white supremacy. You all are better at everything. And when actually you're disproven about that, when we actually know more about your racism and know more about you than you know about yourselves, and we present that on national TV, somehow that is a one-sided situation. Well, and that's what I have thought and shared with some people that 
I felt about the dinner. Like, I'm not sure that we as white women look like we, like we were very much like, yeah, you are, you are right. Like I felt like, and so I'm like, I don't think that's what Dr. Phil wants and the network wants. Well, they, they had their plant there who I think it was, we'll talk, we can, we can, we'll talk okay. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So for people listening, we, there was a Dr. Phil episode, some may or may not know where the race to dinner was highlighted, supposed to be a two-part episode. We will see if part two does air, but um, I will put the link to part one on this hey, episode. Yeah, if people want to go watch that where Regina and Syra had to confront a viral Karen woman. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. You can watch the episode. Okay. So we have the race to dinner. We have the deconstructing Karen, and then we have your book, white women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better in the description. It says a no holds barred guidebook aimed at white women who want to stop being nice and start dismantling white supremacy. Just curious, like when when in this process are you like, yeah, I'm I'm not holding back. I'm writing this book because you went from quiet upholding white supremacy to like literally, I'm just I'm putting it all out there. Yeah. So we in in Feb, I think it must have been February of 2020. So the Guardian, a Pakistani British journalist, flew out. She actually had just moved to New York, flew out to Colorado to do a story on us. So she actually came to an actual dinner, did a story, came out in I think it was February of 2020, like that whole time period, right, right before COVID. Mm-hmm. And it went fully viral crazy. That's when tons of people started covering it. We were supposed to go on Good Morning Britain with Pierce Morgan, like the week of um, the COVID shutdown. So they canceled for that reason. But anyway, my literary agent, I have worked in publishing for many years. So I've had an agent for a long time as a white w- woman who, by the way, tried to sell my memoir after my congressional run. And I had a call with a white woman head of a department at HarperCollins who was interested. And Jess, my agent was like, here's here's the, the time you're we're set, set up the call. And I was like, I want you to be on the call. She was like, okay, fine. I don't need to be, but I was like, I want you to be get on the call. The first thing this woman says to me is I don't like your strategy. And I was like my strategy. And she goes, I think you're going about all this the wrong way. I think this all banks on constitutional amendments, not you talking about white people, blah, blah, blah. And I said, constitutional amendments. And she starts white splaining constitutional amendments to me. So as an aside, I'm a former constitutional scholar. I clerked on the U.S. Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia after law school. My office was right next door to Sam Alito's. So I was like, okay, did you go to law school? Are you a lawyer? No. Are you aware of my background? Yes. And I said, so you're actually whitesplaining constitutional law to me and quiet. And I was like, Jess, this conversation is over. I am now hanging up. Mm-hmm. So she's like, okay. She calls me back and she said, my God, I've never had an author treated that way. And I was like, you've also never had an author of color challenging white people on, on their bullshit. Like that's the, so she, even after that, so she did say to me then, she was like, you're going to have to play nicer with these white women editors. So that's where, that's where we were. Come February of 2020, she herself has had a transformation and we, she's looking at the viralness of this guardian piece. And she was like, I think now's the time for the book. Now is when we strike. This is before George Floyd was murdered. She was like, let us put together a kick-ass proposal. She found 10 white women editors. She literally personally called them all and was like, we need this book. Please, one of you buy this book for us. She sold it in 36 hours to one. She got one offer. The rest said no. One offer. God bless her, Margot Weissman, who has now left um, Penguin Random House altogether. But that's how it happened. So we wrote the book 
um, in 2020 and 2021, and they pushed off. It was supposed to be published in 2021. They pushed it off for a host of reasons. Um, and it came out in November, it came out three months ago to the day, November 1, 2022. Okay. And I, I've read a lot of anti-racism books. I've talked to a lot of anti-racism educators. There is no book quite like yours because you don't, you don't sugarcoat anything and you put that truth out there. I mean, we'll get into it a little bit if we have time, you know, your first chapter on perfectionism. I'm like, oh God, okay. Here's my, here's my whole, been my whole last year of therapy uh, <laughs> right here. Um, so before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about like, okay, we just shared the three month mark and I'm curious. With that, what's been the most surprising thing to you? Where are things now as far as white your white women's reactions? Just talk yeah, a little bit sure. about that. So in so what a miraculous thing happened. Um, the white male man, head of Penguin Books, he's the publisher of Penguin Books. When Margot left, he took over our book. Okay. So he read something in there that was like, okay, there's something here, right? Because mm-hmm. typically when editors leave like that, they kind of the books that they've acquired kind of get pushed off to, to other editors who don't really necessarily have a ton of power. This guy has a lot of power. And in May or so, we had our first like publicity call, all white people, um, with a couple of black and brown assistants. And, um, you know, they were like this, the reads that we're getting in internally are off like the chain. People are just flipping out like for this book. And they're like, we'll get lots of press. And I'm like, no, no, we won't. Just like when Patty was like, this is the best documentary I've ever made in my life. It's going to go to auction. And Regina and I were like, no, it won't. (laughs) And it didn't. Right. Um, And so anyway, next thing you know, Chelsea Handler blurbs it. Anna Paquin blurbs it. A whole bunch of black and brown people blurb it. It gets a Kirkus starred review, which literally they give like 50 out a year. Global. It's like it's like the holy grail of publishing. Right. Mm -hmm. It gets picked as one of the. Uh, biggest books to watch in 2022 by all these people, zero press, zero. We still have not gotten a book review. Okay. And the book hit the New York times bestseller list in the first week. And we still have not gotten a book review. It is now in its fourth printing and we still have not gotten a book review. So, um, you know, after some wrangling, uh, time magazine ran an excerpt, which is amazing. Katie Couric ran an op-ed that, that we wrote. And then, you know, Essence, by the way, I'm sorry, let me let me be clear. Essence totally covered this. Black journal, a few black journalists covered it. So Essence and um, the local Denver ABC station, a black woman there. Uh, Forbes, two black women have written extensively about our book. Uh, but that's like, you know, the people that they were like, you're going to get, when they said, Today Show, Stephen Colbert, you know, all of it, we were like, no way, no way, no way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Dr. Phil called and um, a, a ton of people who are elitist were like, why would you go on Dr. Phil? And I'm like, first of all, why wouldn't we? And second of all, tell us where you, why don't you tell us where, you know, where else we're going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us where else we're going to go. Right. So um, we have been completely unsurprised by the media response, okay. right? And now the book has really, really blown up and it continues to get like, there's, there's, you know, we should be getting a ton more press. We're not like it's, they are, everyone is hoping for this to just go away. You know, like that's the, so that has not been surprising. Um, The surprise has been how people like you came out of the gate 
like, oh my God, this is a life-changing thing. How many white people, how many white women and actually white men? That's the other thing. We have a lot of white men now who are coming on board, not a, not in a misogynistic way, but oh my God, I realized that this book is for me too, you know? Um, so that has been, that has been very surprising because the, going into a fourth printing this soon is, is really kind of a huge deal. So that's been the surprise. However, what is the, then swinging back over here, use the use who really were like, oh my God, this book is the second coming in November and December, got crazy busy with the holidays and got crazy busy with your new year's resolutions and got crazy busy with life and kids. And oh my God, oh my God, whatever the hell it is that you're crazy busy with. Right. Um, and it's gone. So the, those of you who were like, oh my God. And, and so the thing I've been sitting with this because this one white woman has been posting and posting and po- it's, she she started posting when she read it and she's been consistent consistently posting about this book on Instagram and literally tagging people and trying to start a book club and and how like this is a this is a lifelong lifetime journey this is not a book club of the month this is a book club that we should be doing forever like we could take this book and have a book club about this book forever right. and so i was struck by it yesterday because she posted about it yesterday and i was like this is so interesting because to my knowledge she's the only white woman who was was all over this in November on Instagram or December, whichever one it was, and is still continuing to say like, no, this is not just a book. This is a journey. This is a lifetime. This is a whole decolonization thing. And that to me, so I is unsurprised. So I went, so I was surprised by the initial burst of excitement and it's continuing. So the white women now, who lots of new people are discovering this book. In fact, it's it's actually just getting, it's growing, you know? But where are those white women in a month? Where are those white women in two months? And so now we've, we have our first sample of, of three months, which is a kind of a good, like thousands of people read it in November. Now it's for February 1. What are you doing? And I'll tell you what many of them are doing is going back to their nonsense. It's, it's not unlike when white people put the black boxes in their Instagrams after George Floyd was murdered. The amount of police brutality that has happened in the past week alone, do you know that a black man double amputee who doesn't have legs was murdered. I think it was yesterday or the day before a 12 year old black boy was murdered. We are no longer even hearing about this stuff, right? We are not gun violence, mass shootings. We're just, it's just part of the day to day. We're not hearing about it. Mm -hmm. All of it. And so that to me, it's like, I was surprised by the initial burst. I continue to be surprised that so many new white people are picking up the book, reading the book. I mean, we have a ton of live events this year and I'm very unsurprised by where 99.9% of you have gone back to, which is your, your little safe space. So what I'm hearing is you need white women like me to keep publicizing reading. This is not a trend. This we, is not like, yes. we need Andrea. Our life, right, thank you. what, what right. we've been trying to show right, is the whole world, humanity is coming to an end. This is not hyperbole. This is reality. Climate catastrophe is happening. I mean, we're calling it all this. We're putting lipstick on a pig again. Atmospheric river in California. That makes it sound sexy and cool. There is nothing atmospheric about what was happening in California and continues to happen. Austin, Texas, where my sister lives, 
Three years in a row, they've had catastrophic ice storms. The first one being the one that took down the entire grid. That didn't happen in Texas before. Part of Boulder, Colorado burnt down two Christmases ago. Nobody cares. That happened the same time there was a mass shooting down the street in Denver. Nobody's even talking about that. So mass shootings, police brutality, climate catastrophe, all of this is, it's not a linked. There is a straight line between white women being crazy busy and atmospheric rivers and mass shootings. And until and unless you all figure out how to make yourselves well, we are all going to die. And that's like, that is the whole thing is this is not a, we don't have time. It's not even, it's like, it's not a trend. Like people, we have to, we really have to be so in tune with how our own behaviors are causing this stuff. And instead, people's feelings are getting hurt around being called white people. Asians, Asian people, do you know how many Asian people reach out to me on a daily basis? And they're like, stop telling everyone that we're anti-Black. And I'm like, we are. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to go around saying that. I'm like, what is wrong with you? What, what, like we've all been socialized in this way. There's no shame in that. There is shame in not doing anything about it, though. And going back to what you just said, we, and I thank you for correcting me on that, because that's still part of my, what I need to work on is thinking that's like, I don't also, and I'm not also harmed from white supremacy. White people are harmed and killed. And you state that clearly in your book, don't do this for us, do it for you. And all those things you just listed are part of white supremacy. So can you give us just like, a? a, because I think, I don't think I know white people hear that term. My own family and friends included white supremacy and they think of the Ku Klux Klan. So when you say white supremacy in a nutshell, what are you, what are you saying? What are you, what's the simplest definition, which all of this is in your book, by the way, I'm giving the, just lie, a- the lie that everything white is the best. And so yeah. what does that look like? Um, white people dominate the, look, just happened again with the Oscars. White people dominate the media. Look at, look at the fronts of magazines. Look at what's on TV. Look at who lives in your neighborhood. Look at who, when you talk about bad schools and ghetto schools, you're not talking about schools filled with white people. Look at the best, most high-performing schools anywhere you go. It's white people. Look at who's at the the presidents of the United States, but for one, have all been white. And look at what's happened since we got the one black one, right? Um, Who are the majority heads of every major company in America? Who's running the publishing houses? Who is running hospitals? Who's running law firms? That's white supremacy. It's it's white is the default and white is the best. So white people are the smartest. White people are the prettiest white people. Like that's why white like notions of beauty. Right. We're all aspiring to have to to look like the perfect white woman. Mm -hmm. So that is it. Everything. Look around your neighborhood. Who lives in your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Who is in your friend group? Who is at your wedding? Who's at your birthday party? That is all white supremacy. So yes, a hundred percent. The Ku Klux Klan, the Republican Party, those are open and notorious platform. Like they, that is their platform, is white supremacy. Everybody else as is too. Everybody yeah. else is too. And the systems within it that harm us from the mass shootings, police brutality, environmental death of this environment, like all of those things are part of white capitalism. All of those things are white, part of white supremacy that are literally killing yes. all of us. All of it. All of it. It has, it has snatched us of our souls and capitalism is, is completely intertwined. So this consumption, more, 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 more culture is 100% white supremacy. White supremacy patriarchy and capitalism, Google it. You don't need to give me, I don't need to give anyone a lesson. That's right. That's right. Google it because 
you're, you're being all of us, I'm sorry, not you're all of us being conned into buying, you know, $5 lattes and $10 green juices and $200 yoga pants to go perform, to go do yoga for $75 a class in front of white, like literally anorexic white women who have spiritual gangster and namaste y'all on their shirt. Um, This is all white supremacy capitalism. And instead of trying to rip apart the systems that are killing us, you all are retail therapying yourselves and starving yourselves and buying yourselves into feeling something that is, it is all of you. I look at some of these mommy influencers on Instagram and I follow some just to keep it real. I actually follow the ones that have, have posted about us. Okay. Most of them, literally all they do is post about, Oh my God, like, like, and share. If you're feeling so worn out today with your three kids, like, Oh my God is, is depleted the word of 2023 because, and then all these memes about like crazy busy with kids, 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 like seriously, Mm -hmm. like you don't care that black kids are getting shot on the street and you're like, hosting all day about your kids' soccer practices and pottery classes. Oh, Syrah, yes. Everything you said, 100% yes. And going back to that white supremacy, we talked about, and I'm watching the time here because I'm going to try to fit in a couple, the perfection and the niceness. Because when we talked about white supremacy hurts us all, you start out, first chapter, you talk about the perfection. You say you cannot even start the process of extracting white supremacy from your being until you extract the need to be perfect. So full stop in my tracks with reading your chapter on perfection, because like I said, I've read a lot of anti-racist books. Nothing laid it out so clear or made me realize like my struggle with perfection, with how I look, how would I weigh eating disorders, perfect grades, perfect school. Like my whole life has been that never as I like until the last year. I mean, really associating that with white supremacy and like you can't even move forward until you start working on that shit within yourself and also realize this is not a perfect process. And you even share, you struck, like you were, you were part of that trying to be the perfect, perfect everything. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I would, so that's, that's why I'm saying is I think what, what is, it is cool though. There are people that chapter in particular, which is why we started, we played around, we were trying to figure out who, where do we start mm-hmm. that we purposefully started there. Cause you can't even have these conversations until you really inspect how your entire life has been um, created in this, you're, that's the, that is the guiding principle of white womanhood is perfection, mm-hmm. you know? And um, many, many white women who've come through our race to dinner and race to community programs have said, it's been the first work that's enabled them to stop having an eating disorder to give you a sense of how, like how, oh my God, when you see this for what it is, um, it's kind of too much to go into, but I will say this is one very clear way that it gets in the way of anti-racism work. And it's true for me too. It's true for any, I would say anyone is when your guiding principle in life is being perfect. You don't want to do anything where you're not the best, where you're not doing it perfectly. First of all, it doesn't exist. So it's an impossible goal, which is that's the whole con. So you're actually spinning your wheels your whole life, running yourself ragged to try to achieve something that literally doesn't exist. Um, You're buying your way, you're sleeping your way, you're starving your way, like whatever it is. Um, But so when it comes to anti-racism work, you dip your toes in it, right? And first of all, you actually, you don't, you by definition, don't know more about being on the receiving end of racism 
than black and brown people do. Just like men, by definition, do not know more about being on the receiving end of sexism as women. So you just don't. So you already are starting this game for the first fucking time in your life where you are not 20,000 steps ahead in knowledge. So you come in thinking you're going to do this perfectly. And my goodness, right away or at some point pretty soon, you are told by somebody, God forbid it's someone who looks like me or even worse, someone who looks like Regina, a black woman, who tells you, no, you go into a shame spiral, you flip out, you get really angry, you know, and 9.999 times out of 10, you stop. Because you're like, if I can't like, you know, fuck those people, like I'm trying to do something good. And they're like, don't look a gift horse in the mouth kind of thing. And that's it. So, so you're, if you want to be the best, you see these white women at the golden globes, however many years ago, who took a bunch of brown and black women as accessories, essentially as their dates to the golden globes. That's what your anti-racism work in your mind is supposed to look like your white saviors. That's what you're, you know, so the first time you get beaten down, it's not even beaten down. Someone in a comment on Instagram or Facebook or a tweet says, checks you, tries to hold you accountable. You see it as the, the your vision of it is someone has pulled out an AK-15 and blown up your family. So then you're out. You're out. That is the end of your anti-racism work. And that is how this shit continues. It's true. I mean, I would say that's one of the hardest thing for me to fight from starting whatever, three, four years ago, talking and called out like within the first couple of weeks, I remember by like Maisha T. Hill and have to go live with her. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be done with this. But it's you in this conversation. It's a reminder. No, this is for all of us. This is not just for me. This is not my comfortable. I mean, this is uncomfortable, messy, messy work. And I think white women, like you said, starting the basis for getting past, you're going to mess up or getting past that perfection, knowing you're going to mess up, you're going to say the wrong thing, but you have to keep going. Not for you, for all of us, for us. For your kids. Yeah. But I come back to, I'm just curious is, is if maybe whiteness is too far gone. I mean, Sandy Hook was a very informative thing. Those are white blonde babies, kindergartners and first graders, rich white blonde babies. And not only did guns not end, they're out of control now. So if you all don't care enough about the people you purport, to like be crazy busy with at all times. You just don't care. I mean, I I think that's really it is this work is not just, we call it decolonizing. I think that's too mild. It's bringing your soul back. Mm -hmm. It's like snatching your soul back from the body snatchers. Like, and, and I can tell you this now that I'm pretty far deep into this work. And I think I've only started, you know, is I've never felt more alive in my life. I've never felt, do I feel awesome all the time? Fuck no. I feel horrible a lot of the times, but I feel something. Mm-hmm. I feel something. And I realized that I spent so much of my life not feeling, just going through the motions, being anxious on it, being anxious and going through the motions, filling time, piecing things together, over scheduling. I don't have, I literally leave most of my days open unless I'm doing a specific media thing like this because that's also colonial behavior. If you if you schedule every minute of every day, there's no time for you to think about anything. Right. Let's not. That's why white women were staying crazy busy, right? I mean, that's why we do it. That's why patriarchy. That's why they want us to be that way, because we don't have time for this. And and, and if you all saw some of the shit that white men send to us talking about you all. It is it. They are not your friends. And all you do is cape for them all day long. And it's really pathetic and sad. Sarah, it's 9.58. I have to wrap up. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about, I want to, I'm respecting your time. I still want to talk to you about white niceness, but um, 
We don't have we, time. We can do a part two maybe next okay. month. Because <laughs> that's my biggest struggle still is this white well, knife. And so here's my here's my call to action for you. Okay. Start a book club around this book. And and don't do it once. Start it and once a month you all meet for one hour. It could be over Zoom, it could be in real life, and you take chapter by chapter because that's you need to have these conversations with your friends, your families, other white women, connect with other white women, join a race to community cohort. That's what we're doing. We're actually doing that. Have these conversations with your people. And that's I want to talk. Okay, so yes, the race that you okay, so. Yes. And I have been trying to intentionally, you know, because I've lost my white friends when I started speaking up against this. So that's been my struggle of not being nice and yet keeping the white friends. And so I guess, I mean, I've tried to read a lot of what Lisa talks about. Lisa Bond is your resident white woman and how how to balance that. Because I think that's one of the biggest struggle for white women coming out of being nice, but yet still keeping that white community. Um, you need to join a race to community cohort to give you, to, to, she's doing like six or seven at one time now. So many okay. women have joined. please like go to race to dinner.com under programs, race to community, sign up with a friend and, and just do it. That's all that you do in this is build community with other white women. And you don't talk about black people. You don't talk about Brown people. You talk about undoing your whiteness. You cannot, okay. you cannot create community until and unless you start getting deep in this anti-whiteness work. Okay. So that is a perfect way. We're going to wrap this up because I've asked, I was wondering, tell us all the places you can be found. So not only do you have the race to dinner, you just shared, you have the cohorts where you're actually creating these spaces that white women who are on these, on these same journeys are not being nice, are willing to listen around the the world. I mean, it really is. You can connect with white women in Paris and Sydney and the UK Mm -hmm. and Canada I mean, it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary community. We have a mighty network that you can join. We're, we're having these conversations away from Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Okay, so I'm going there. Just go to racetodinner.com, join, sign up for things, but start. I would say the book is is that it's the lowest hanging fruit and the movie is the lowest hanging fruit. Start there. They're both, you know what? And if you can't afford it, we'll find a way for you to get a book. I'll pay and for it. Message me if you cannot afford the book, afford to watch the movie, send me a message and I will send you a copy Andrea. Buy 10 books, commit to buying 10 books, you and do a giveaway with this podcast and the 10 and the 10 women you give it away to. Those are the 10 women you start your book club with. That's it. It's not that complicated. You're not too crazy busy to do it. I swear. No, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm crazy busy. I've learned. No, I know. I'm saying you, you and everybody else, none of you are too crazy busy to do this because unless you're saying that you're too crazy busy to care about yourself and your children and humanity, then you're not too crazy busy to do this. That's right. So tell tell my listeners where they can watch the movie also, Sarah. We know where we can find Race to Dinner because you're still doing that. There's still yep. dinners to sign up for, to host. You're, yep, yep, yep. yep. They're actually, I think all those are, we're, we, there's, we have lots of stuff. So go look okay. on racetodinner.com and then the movie you can see, go to iTunes and search up Deconstructing Karen. Okay. Uh, and go to any search engine and look up white women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. And you can find them both. Okay. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes where people can find you on Instagram, follow you, race to dinner on Instagram, all of the things. Syra, thank you for this last hour. Thank you for your book, your work, your truth telling. Thank you for all of it. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you for listening in on our conversation. I know a lot of information was given. So as always, you can find links in the show notes for watching the movie, participating in the race to dinner, watching the Dr. Phil episode and buying the book. 
I also want to let you know that since we recorded this episode, it was announced that Syra and Regina have a new children's book series coming out called Race to the Truth. The first two books in the series are now available for pre-order, and that link can also be found in the show notes to this episode at herstoriespeaks.com. 